Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The 1960s saw the start of Native student activism and the birth of the American Indian Movement. The decade also saw the beginning of the era of self-determination. It was a pivotal time for Native Americans, all set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War and the violent struggle over civil rights. In the background was iconic music that included Buffy St. Marie and Link Ray, and a new type of film known as Revisionist Westerns that attempted to show Native characters in a positive light. Today we begin our walk through the decades and look at the 1960s from a Native perspective. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The United States Supreme Court recently issued an opinion giving states concurrent jurisdiction with the federal government over major crimes in Indian country. This week, tribal leaders are holding a virtual roundtable to determine how to move forward. An attorney with the Native American Rights Fund says the opinion impacts tribes across the country. Victoria Wicks reports. Two years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its McGirt ruling that restored historical reservation boundaries in Oklahoma. As a result, almost half of that state, including Tulsa, is now Indian country. Before that decision came out, the state of Oklahoma tried and convicted Victor Castro Huerta for child neglect. After the McGirt ruling, Castro Huerta appealed his conviction, saying the state did not have jurisdiction because the crime occurred in Tulsa on tribal land and the young victim is Cherokee. The Supreme Court disagreed and found that the state has concurrent jurisdiction with the feds over a non-Indian, even under these circumstances. The situation in Oklahoma is extremely unusual, with a large and sudden increase in tribal land mass and on-reservation population. Oklahoma argued that federal prosecutors have been overwhelmed with felony cases, and so the state needs to step in. But NARF attorney Melody McCoy says the recent opinion affects more states than Oklahoma, which was joined by Texas as an amicus. There's 35 states around the United States that have federally recognized tribes within their borders. I'm not convinced that every single state has the same level of uh, and type of interest that Oklahoma and Texas have. She says there are 574 federally recognized tribes of varying sizes and relationships with states, and it will fall to their leaders to find ways to protect tribal sovereignty and keep their citizens safe. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. Cherokee Nation citizen Dwight Birdwell received the Medal of Honor Tuesday for his service during the Vietnam War. President Joe Biden awarded the 74-year-old with the military's highest honor during a ceremony at the White House. A member of the Cherokee Nation, Birdwell credits the Cherokee veterans who came before him and encouraged him to serve when he called. And I might note, Native American communities a larger percentage serve in the United States Armed Forces at a higher percentage rate than any other cohort in America, than any other cohort in America. After leaving the Armory, Birdwell continued to build a legacy of service in his community in Oklahoma. Specialist 5 Birdwell's Army Troop was involved in an attack in Saigon in 1968. His tank commander became incapacitated and many of the unit's vehicles were disabled or destroyed. Birdwell moved the tank commander to safety. He was wounded when he took command and continued fighting, remained on the battlefield after running out of ammunition and aided in evacuating the wounded. Birdwell says receiving the recognition is a great honor. Brings honor, respect, I believe, to the Cherokee Nation and its people. 
brings honor and respect to the 25th Infantry Division, the U.S. Army, and the unit I served with in Vietnam. I know it makes my family proud of me, and uh, it uh, lets the world know that I served with uh, dignity and pride and brought no shame to the Cherokee people. Birdwell served on the Cherokee Nation's highest court for more than a decade and continues to practice law. He was one of four soldiers honored Tuesday. Wednesday's Google Doodle celebrates comedian Charlie Hill, who was born 71 years ago. The Oneida comedic great appeared on The Tonight Show and The Richard Pryor Show, taking Hollywood by storm early in his career. He's credited for leading the way for Native Americans and comedy. He passed away in 2013 after battling cancer. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Many associate the 1960s with hippies, Beatlemania, psychedelia, political assassinations, and the Vietnam War. But it was also a decade that saw the U.S. government grant more civil liberties and the rise of the Red Power Movement. There were major milestones for Native people during the decade. In 1962, the Institute of American Indian Arts was founded in Santa Fe. In 1966, the Alaska Federation of Natives was founded in Anchorage. Hunting and fishing rights, as provided by treaty, are preserved in a 1966 Supreme Court decision, Menominee Tribe of Indians versus United States. Then in 1968, the Indian Civil Rights Act was passed with the intention to replace termination with policies of self-determination. There was also a change in art, film, and pop culture as Native people became more embraced by white mainstream society. This is the start of our new Through the Decades series. We'll take a look at milestones and pop culture moments of each decade, and we want to hear from you. Do you remember the 60s? If so, what are some special moments you remember as a Native person during that decade of empowerment? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open. We're waiting for your call. Well, let's get into this. Our first guest is joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Deanna Aguiar is the Director of Programs and Development for the National Indian Youth Council. She is Isleta del Sur Pueblo. Deanna, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, yeah, thank you for having me. So glad you to be bet. here. You bet. Are you ready to talk a little 1960s? I am. I am. Uh, this organization, the National Indian Youth Council, you know, we started up in 1961. We were at the beginning of it all. And since then, we've been standing up for treaty rights, fighting discrimination, and, and doing our best to end poverty. 
Yeah, you certainly were. And, you, and NIYC played a pivotal role with the start of the Red Power Movement, and that later evolved into what became the American Indian Movement. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the National Indian Youth Council? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, we started up the, it was called America Before Columbus newsletter. And this newsletter went out every month. And it's kind of like a combination between Indian Country Today and Turtle Talk and just kind of roundup of all of the Indian issues that, that were happening at the time. And what you know, I actually have a couple of copies of, of the, old, um, the old newsletter here, thanks to the uh, Milwaukee Public Museum. And uh, just this month, in July 27th of 1964, I have a listing here of, of all the things that NIYC was involved in and fighting for and against. They had protests going on in Olympia uh, to um, protect the fishing rights up there. They've, they were participating in, in campaigns in D.C. as well as um, participating in like youth councils and conferences and trying to build uh, youth leadership. So this uh, newsletter really, I think, reached a lot of people. Yeah, I think it did. And, and I, I know there were two, you know, really pivotal leaders there during those early years, Mel Tom and, and Clyde Warrior, both of them iconic figures in the early years of Indian activism. And just just an amazing story there at NIYC and something that I don't think a lot of Native people realize that, you know, AIM just didn't come out of nowhere. There were earlier people that were working, that were organizing, that were kind of setting the stage for what would become Red Power and evolve into AIM and some of these more prolific uh, events of activism and some of these protests. So, Deanna, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you giving us that background, that more information. And let's go to another guest we have today. Joining us from the Black Hills in South Dakota is Professor Donovan Sprague. He is an author and professor of history at Sheridan College. He is Cheyenne River Sioux. Donovan, thanks for coming on the show. Are you ready to talk a little bit about the 1960s? Yes, I am. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And I got to ask you, did you experience the decade firsthand? Oh, yes, I did. I, I think it's kind of interesting how, uh, you know, as a kid uh, growing up in that decade and, you know, grade school and, and that and, you know, barely into high school by the end of the decade, but then to... Uh, then to later read more about every uh, you know organization that was involved in and uh, the policies of the U.S. government at that time, and then to you know finally teach those things in American Indian Studies programs at at universities uh, is kind of interesting. Then to look back and say. Hey, I I remember this part, and, and this is where I was, you know, at least at that time, and it um, it gives you kind of a, a broader uh, understanding, I think, of of the whole realm of things. Well, let's talk about some pivotal Native events from the '60s, and I, I think a good place to start is Indian relocation. Uh, the Indian Relocation Act and, and the federal government's vision of a Native diaspora to urban areas. Donovan, please give us some details. Okay, yes, the uh, Relocation Act, uh, uh, this was really known in the 1950s, actually, first uh, relocation in hand with uh, 
the, the terrible termination policy as well. But uh, a lot of this kind of backs up, I want to back up first uh, a little bit earlier to uh, 1944 and the creation of the NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians, and some of their efforts to uh, at inroads and even, you know, into the 60s to, to uh, try to accomplish some of the things that the National Indian Youth Council uh, also worked in in 1961 when they were formed. And uh, they were very closely aligned with NCAI. And uh, in their, uh, I think it was their 1961 Chicago conference, you know, was kind of felt that uh, with the Youth Council, they may have a different angle at, uh, you know, reaching into federal policy and uh, specifically into uh, John F. Kennedy administration and, uh, and hoping to be able to influence you know some of that. So uh, with with relocation and termination, basically, uh, uh, well, House Concurrent Resolution uh, 108. But uh, another part of that was the uh, what was the termination then of of tribes actually, where uh, in experiments, a couple tribes were were terminated from their status. You know, like uh, one day you're a, a tribe and next day you're a, a county. Uh, as an example, but the, the relocation, you know, uh, really being from moving a big transition from the reservation into the uh, urban areas, and so I I was able to uh, experience that later, uh, much later, just into the say like early 70s. I wasn't part of the the older relocation program, which moved families into cities and. Uh, employment and training was the main objective as well as hoping, you know, the people would, would kind of like be off the rolls from the, from the reservation and they marry and assimilate into the larger dominant culture and, um, and everybody is happy, so to speak. <laughs> and they, you know, just, they kind of go away, but, um, there were a lot of things that happened in the urban Indian world uh, centered around American Indian centers and pan-Indianism, the coming together of various tribes together for one cause, even the, the, the powwows and the dance. And, and the American Indian people never went away. I mean, uh, when later when I experienced the same concept, it was called higher ed, higher education. So I went from the reservation one day, like riding horses and town, and, and the next day into the Bay Area. So um, it was the same concept, and it was always um, one-way ticket out, too. You know, you may pay your way over there, but then uh, then you're there. And so we were, uh, in my case, we were processed over the naval base uh, at Alameda, and that's where we would receive our checks to to go to school, you know, a monthly uh, stipend type thing. And and so, you know, you had to, you know, maintain your grades and all that. So that was kind of my experience. But it gave me firsthand, you know, experience of, of people who, were on, who went on the relocation program with families. And then, of course, I knew a lot of people who who were on relocation family and friends as well.
Well, these these relocation destinations, San Francisco, of course, was one, Denver, Minneapolis, even Cleveland, Ohio, which I don't think gets as much attention, but those, uh, it, it still felt today, like you mentioned, the Indian centers and, and, and people that just moved there and they stayed there, they've raised their families and just that beginning of, of that migration into urban areas. And, and obviously, you know, the, the, the program, uh, depending on, on who you talk to, it was a dismal failure. Or some people say, well, you know, it worked in some ways. But, but regardless, the effects are just so longstanding. And as, as Native people, we continue to, to move to cities. We see that trend continuing. And it, it all kind of has its roots there during that relocation period, for better or worse. And Donovan, when we started the show, uh, we heard President Biden mentioning uh, the mel- uh, many Native people that have served uh, throughout the years in, in the military, and especially in the Vietnam War, that person from Cherokee uh, was was recognized and honored. Let's talk a little about the Vietnam War and, and how it affected Indian country. But before we do that, we are going to have to go to break and um, do, a, do a short uh, message underwriting. But, but we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about the Vietnam. We're going to talk a little about the Supreme Court and some high-profile rulings from the 60s. We're going to talk a little bit about the Indian Civil Rights Act. And we're going to have some fun as well. We're going to talk some pop culture. We're going to talk movies. We're going to talk some entertainment. We're going to talk art. So we've got a full, full slate of topics for you here today on Native America Calling. And we want to hear from you. If you are a Native child of the 60s, give us a holler. 1-800-996-2848. Lots to talk about. Lots to think about. The 60s. I was young when the 60s started, but I can barely say I was uh, I was born in 19. 19- 67, so I guess I'm kind of a native child from the 60s, maybe a native baby from the 60s. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. Folks, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We're back right after this. Co-ops are a way for Native entrepreneurs to combine their collective strength and share resources, wisdom, and costs. From farming to renewable energy, Native business owners are working together on a developing business model with deep roots. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're kicking off our special Through the Decade series with the 1960s. We've been discussing major milestones for Native people. We want to hear from you. What major political or social moments do you remember? Join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Donovan Sprague. He is a history professor and... Donovan, the 1960s, a, a turbulent decade, some might say a loss of innocence. It was, uh, it was a time of empowerment, but it was also a tough time in the period of American history. And of course, the Vietnam War played a big role in that. That was a war that it wasn't a glorious war like World War II. People didn't come home heroes from that. 
the United States came off uh, really, really wounded from that war on, on a number of levels. But tell us, Donovan, how did it impact Indian country, the Vietnam War? Well, the Vietnam War uh, impacted uh, America, and it impacted the American Indian people uh, very heavily because of the participation rate, which was always high for American Indian people. And, I mean, it, it was just like a uh, every night, you know, on, on the news, you know, it was just uh, everywhere was was uh, the, the latest death count. And... Uh, you know the, the just such a, a terrible time, you know, of war. But then I was I was very happy to hear about the uh, award that you mentioned earlier, um, Medal of Honor to the Cherokee uh, gentleman, um, and the note uh, that mentioned by uh, President Biden, and and uh, in in that quote that was just aired, I heard him say that um, no other ethnic group or he called it a cohort group, uh, you know, participates in the wars as much as American Indian people. And I've been saying that for for years. I speak at Fort Knox. I've been to Germany and France and at these bases, especially on, on Veterans Day and American Indian Heritage Month. And that's one of the closing things I, I talk about is that American Indian people serve at uh, usually around 50% are veterans of American Indian wars, including of, uh, excuse me, of, of U.S. wars. And Vietnam, you know, being one of those, and, you know, they're like, there's no ethnic group in America that comes close to that figure. Right. So right. that's the first time I heard it, like from, it, it gets through, you know, they're pulling out some good stats there and that's uh, due to uh, the president's cabinet and and uh, people that um, you know have those mm -hmm. types of uh, uh, information and data. Absolutely, Donovan. Tell us a little about the Indian Civil Rights Act and, and how did that come about? Well, the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968 came about after the, of course, the. Uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then the uh, focus on that American Indian people specifically need uh, their rights as well, and, and some of those involved like uh, uh, full access to the to the U.S. Bill of Rights and uh, inroads, at least you know, like some things were like uh, freedom mm -hmm. of religion, which specifically didn't come about until 1978 with the Indian Child Welfare Act and and American Indian Religious Freedom Act but those things were 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 being talked about as problematic areas in that and then uh, habeas corpus you know justification of lawful imprisonment right to a trial by a jury and and some of those things seem like you know well wow those those should just be an inherent and, and something not new, but it is. You know, like I've I've told my students before. I say, well, you know, what year did American Indian people uh, get their religious freedom? You know, and they're thinking like 1800s and early 1900s, and you know, they can't hardly believe it when it's when you say 1978. You know, that's like right. yesterday. 
But right. um, another thing with, with all this that we've been talking about, too, is, uh, of course, Johnson uh, signed this, the uh, uh, Indian Civil Rights Act, President uh, Johnson. And, and another part of that, of course, was the Great Society, you know, Johnson's Great Society and uh, War on Poverty. And so I, that was another big part that I directly, you know, witnessed uh, uh, that, you know, money and funds were, came into uh, reservations, including uh, my homeland, which is, uh, is among the poorest. And I never did have a job, you know, under that program where I was able to work but I seen a lot of people, uh, you know, even teenagers for the first time going to work, you know, on our reservation. And I thought, wow, that's, that's something I never seen before. You know, there were, there were no jobs. <laughs> you know? right. Well, Donovan, thanks for, for all that background, especially with regard to the Indian Civil Rights Act and it incorporated modifications to the first and fourth through eighth amendments of the Bill of Rights into federal law. So it's really great to have that background. Let's now talk with another person who had a lot going on in the 1960s. Dawn Little Sky is a retired actress. She is Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux, and she's joining us from Kyle, South Dakota. Dawn, it is such a pleasure to have a trailblazing Native woman such as yourself on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm talking to you from Yellow Bear Canyon, right in the middle of Pine Ridge Reservation. All right. And I understand that's where your, your husband was from, who was also a, a high-profile Native actor during the 60s, Eddie Little Sky. That's right. Well, Don, I know you and Eddie both appeared in some pretty big films in the 1960s. Tell us all about it. Uh, well, we were rodeo people originally, and coming home one uh, summer, they were making Crazy Horse, a film up in the Black Hills. And being a rider and everything, he got uh, on the picture. And I did, too. So we worked in, on uh, Crazy Horse and got to know some film people, and they've talked about uh, how it was making films, and we found out we liked it. So when winter came, it was a choice to buy winter clothes and stay in South Dakota or go to California. <laughs> So we opted for California. Well, what was it like, Don, as a as a native actress in the nineteen sixties? Were there were there other native people working on these sets and in these movies that you and Eddie were on? Uh, not many, about uh, under ten, I imagine. And what was your favorite role from all the movies that you were in? My favorite role, I think, I like Duel Diablo. That was a film with uh, that uh, we made in in uh, New Mexico, and we both worked on it. But it was a high action film, and I always enjoyed watching my husband work with horses. He was so beautiful on riding horses. Well, speaking of, of your husband, the late 
Eddie Little Sky, and, and you mentioned him being a, a great horseman. And when you look, you know, there's pictures of him all over the internet, and I cannot get over how much Rodney Grant bears a resemblance to your late husband. Has it? Does anybody ever say that? How much Rodney Grant looks like Eddie did? <laughs> I don't say it, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think people think, oh, Rodney Grant was just this, you know, such an original and this, and yeah, I mean, he did, he did some great work there with Dancing with Wolves and stuff, but, but um, I'm just going to tell you, Don, he couldn't take a dime from your husband, Eddie, because <laughs> Eddie had that look back, back way before, way before. And well, tell us a little bit more about just being there, being native in the 1960s, being part of Hollywood, working in movies. Uh, do you have any just fun, cool stories from that time of your life? One time we were in uh, Alden, the uh, street in Hollywood Boulevard, and that's when the hippie culture first started, and Uh-oh. he was coming down the street, and he had eagle feathers tied all over his his uh, jacket, and all at once he saw two Indians walking there, and of course, he just, his heart just went out. There were his idols, and he came and said, oh, sir, I just admire your culture so much. And all of my husband looked at him and said, you don't deserve those eagle feathers and took a grab at him. That hippie hasn't stopped running yet. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. I'll bet he just scared the life out of him there. So, well, Don, here you were doing all this work back in the 1960s. I know you met some, some famous actors. You worked with Gregory Peck. You worked with Glenn Ford. You were on the television show Gunsmoke, and and now let's click ahead. Here we are, 2022, and we have um, native-produced movies. We have directors that who are native. We have movies and television shows that have virtually all native casts. How does it make you feel to know that that you were part of of movie making back in the early days before none of what we see now existed? That really is amazing. I'm so proud of them for stepping up and our story needs to be told from our point of view. Every time uh, there was an Indian uh, role come up, it usually went to some actor as a uh, great departure from his usual role. <laughs> and, the, and the Indian could have done it with his eyes closed. Well, Don, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing some of your life experience. And and I want to thank you for everything that you have done for Native people, you and your your late husband, Eddie Little Sky, both of you, both beautiful people. And and I'm proud to to talk to you today. And um, I just really appreciate what you folks did as trailblazers back in the 1960s. Speaking with us now from Seattle, Washington, we have Dr. Jonathan Tomhave. He is a writer, producer, educator, and film historian, and he's ready to talk a little bit of 1960s, too. He's a citizen of the MHA Nation. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Welcome. Good morning. Glad to be here. 
Jonathan, talking with Don Little Sky about portrayals of Native people in, in films from the 60s, Native people, Native actors specifically, was it only in Westerns that, that Native people were, were appearing on screen back in those days? Um, no, not, not typically, but that's actually where people generally thought they would see Native people. Actually, there, there is, I know we're talking about pop culture, um, but there actually were a couple of uh, film projects that were done, one in 61 and one in 66, that are, that are very interesting, that didn't quite hit the radar um, for Americans until much later. Um, the first one was a documentary uh, called The Exiles. It was made in 1961 by Kent McKenzie. And the other one was a, a film series uh, done by Saul Worth and John Adair called, in a titled Navajo Film Themselves. And they were, they're both kind of, kind of like, you know, they're both very interesting because with the, with the, the Exiles, Kent McKenzie, he was very interested in Native people and Native life, and he went to the reservation to uh, to actually record what it was actually like living at being a Native living on the reservation. But when he went to a few of them, he noticed that the youth weren't there. They had, of course, for relocation, had moved to the cities. And so he decided then to actually make a film about the night in the life of a, of a bunch of young Native people in Los Angeles. And it, it started in the 50s and you know, when he started filming late 50s and finished in 61, and it was done in a guerrilla style of filmmaking to where they would, him and his friends would lift camera from other shoots, use the ends of reels, and shot this incredibly beautiful uh, documentary of, of night. And it's, and like all documentaries, it has some docudrama elements to it. And when it was released at the, at the Venice Film Festival, it was given a wide critical acclaim. But unfortunately, what happened was that the uh, the public wasn't ready for something like that because it did not fit the the, the stereotypes, the essentialisms that America had been raised upon about how Native people are supposed to be. Because these were Native people in modernity; these are Native people living living their lives. And the second set was the Navajo film themselves, and it was just an interesting experiment with the film with the, these two academics. They wanted to see what would Native people make if they were taught how to make film, but not taught film techniques. And their question was, you know, would there, would there be something that would come out of it because they wouldn't have the, necessarily the burden of this is how you're supposed to shoot a film. And depending upon who they had, just because, you know, with the Navajos that they worked with, they, they, some lived on the reservation, some lived in cities. That the, that the aesthetics actually reflected that. But what was really interesting about it is that, is that a lot of what they noticed was that a lot of traditional Navajo uh, story narrative techniques were actually added into the film, that they filmed something that they would use when they would tell stories. For example, it would be uh, like walking was a big uh, part of, of a lot of the stories that they would tell, even though in mo modern times they would use a truck to get to places. They would film walking and journeys and stuff like that. So those are two really interesting films that were made there. Um, and Jonathan, I'm sorry, like, real quick, yeah. real yeah. quick, Jonathan. So X-Files 1961 and then Navajo film themselves. Are these movies available? Like, can you find this stuff on Netflix? How could people watch this? Um, the X-Files, it's on DVD. Periodically, you can see it pop up somewhere. 
Um, the Navajo film themselves, unfortunately, it's uh, you have to actually pay to get the DVD, and it's a lot more expensive because uh, of the intellectual property and, and who it's owned by. And the reason why I wanted to talk about both these films, because, you know, although there were a number of wonderful films that have Native people that were in them during the 60s, these were two films that were actually added to the National Film Registry. Um, you know, so they actually are preserved for all time. And so they are critically acclaimed, important films that were made. Um, and a little side note is that when the Exiles came, before the Exiles came out, I got a chance to see, to see the restored version. And I was having a, a meeting with, uh, with uh, Ben Levin. He's a professor emeritus from uh, right, University Jonathan, of Texas. Jonathan, I'm sorry. Jonathan, we're yeah. going to have to go to break, but I'm going to let you finish this story because I know we all really want to hear more about it. Folks, if you're listening right now and you want to talk about the 60s, what are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. We'll be right back after this break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the 1960s from a Native perspective. If you have a question or comment for our show, if you remember rocking the love beads, tie-dye, and moccasins, we want to know what that was like. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Call us. We're speaking now with Dr. Jonathan Tomhave. He is a writer, producer, educator, and a film historian. Jonathan, before break, you were getting ready to tell us a story. It was shaping up to sound really interesting, exciting. Please continue. Yeah, um, I was speaking with, uh, like I said, uh, uh, Professor Emeritus Ben Levin, and I mentioned that I've actually seen the film, The Exiles, and he says, oh, on VHS, I said, no, I've seen the new revised print and he was shocked and stunned he goes that was his favorite film of all time um because he just said just the the beauty of it the story that was told and just how how native people were seen very differently than what was being produced at that at that time um so that is a very interesting thing and also the reason why i said like these are so important because um Navajo film themselves was put to the national registry in 19, uh, 2002 and the exiles in 2008 and that means that these are films that are so important that the federal government has said that these must be preserved for all time. So um, that's why, you know, it's up there with like The Godfather as far as being being considered an important film. Wow. Wow. Jonathan, thanks for that information. And I really appreciate this because this is something that I had never heard of before. And I think a lot of listeners are like, wow, I never heard of these movies or any of these uh, of any of this stuff uh, going on in the film industry back in the 1960s and, and what you describe as being in kind of a docu documentary look at Navajo people, just really, really, really intriguing. Uh, let's go to another perspective from the 1960s. We have joining us from Norman, Oklahoma, America, Meredith. 
She is a writer, visual artist, and independent curator. She is the publishing editor of First American Art Magazine, and she's also an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. America, thanks for coming on the show to talk a little 60s as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's interesting because the 1960s is so important globally, and of course a lot of things were happening in Indian country, but I think in the visual art world, it was kind of uh, the calm before the storm. I think the storm really happened in the 70s, but um, the 60s were a time of uh, planting seeds where things started happening, you know, started bubbling up. And I really appreciate the previous speaker, Jonathan, talking about Native people and modernity, because that's a theme that uh, we'll see with visual arts in the 60s, that some of these artists who are Native, they weren't considered, quote, unquote, Indian artists at the time, because the definition was narrow and a lot of these artists were getting they were getting formal educations they were getting art degrees based on the gi bill a lot of people were veterans from world war ii and korea war and um yeah we know today that your indianness doesn't fall off when you go to college and get a degree but at the time there was this you know kind of narrow idea that you had to work in certain forms and that's something the 1960s exploded and um, I think the institution that really uh, changed minds was um, the Institute of American Indian Arts, which you mentioned before, um, founded in 1962 in Santa Fe. And Lloyd Cuban New was one of the co-founders of Cherokee Nation. And he walked away from a multi-million dollar fashion uh, business. So people thought he was insane, but he really saw visual arts as a way for young Native people to be able to work in you know, find a place in contemporary society, you know, the wage society, the capital society that we live in, but also uh, retain connections to their cultures and to get that um, sense of uh, self-esteem and pride that is so important for young Native people. Um, but also, he really saw that um, culture, they needed to add their own voices to the um to the canon of Native art. So, you know, now now I think we kind of accept this, but this was very radical at the time. And I love T.C. Cannon, you know, one of the early students who really exemplifies this time where he um, essentially said, it's like, Indian art is anything made by an Indian. And that is what the 60s made. So some of these uh, major names now that we celebrate, like George Morrison, uh, at the time really weren't, and I don't think even he, artist. But uh, George Morrison, of course, is uh, Grand Portage Ojibwe. Uh, he got a formal art degree in Minnesota. He worked and lived in New York City. He studied in Paris. And a lot of these artists are very cosmopolitan. I always think Native people travel a really exclusive art. And that's an interesting phenomenon you'll see throughout the 60s is uh, Of students, and that's something you'll also see with Oscar Howe. Um, Oscar Howe, Terry Saul, and Dick West all um, able to go to o OU, University of Oklahoma, where I'm at, and they were able to get MFAs with the GI Bill, and they were able, with that, they were able to teach. So Oscar Howe, um, he was teaching at University of South Dakota. Okay. Uh, America, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and let you, our producers work on your line a little bit. You're cutting out a little bit, but but this is great information. Really appreciate it. Donovan, um, let, let's talk a little bit more about, about some of the art uh, going on in the 1960s. And as I understand it, you were in a psychedelic rock band in the Bay Area during the 60s. Tell us about that. 
Oh yeah, I've always been a, a you know a, had a lot of interest in art and music. In fact, I teach uh, American Indian art today. That's uh, usually not on my repertoire of uh, you know usually history, but I also teach art and uh, been a musician all my life, uh, stringed instruments, uh, guitar like. But you know what everybody was saying here is is so important. You know, I picked up the, uh, you know, the awareness from from the the movies, the the media, the radio, TV, all of that was very important for advancing American Indian people. I mean, you had like people like Marlon Brando uh, at the head of the fishing rights, you know, in like 1964, making a statement. You had um, Link Ray, um, Jimi Hendrix, who was had American Indian blood also. People like Jesse Ed Davis, Joan Baez, which led to bands like Redbone, um, Tom B with, you know, in the, the 70s with his um, American Indian, you know, recording and studio and all that. But uh, yeah, I was in a band and um, actually I was, that uh, was earlier than that. I was in this band as a sophomore in high school and uh, they were just passing the guitar around and everybody else was like graduated from high school or or like married out of high school and they were it was kind of like a busk thing they were passing the guitars around each other and and i think they handed it to me just for a joke because they didn't know if i played or not and i i just whipped out a few tunes you know and they said up uh, you were playing uh this weekend in Fort Thompson, which is on the Crow Creek Reservation, and and be there. You're our lead guitarist. <laughs> so I fell in <laughs> with a band that was playing uh, pretty pretty heavier stuff. Like you know, you know, I was into like Beatles and Rolling Stone stuff the '60s, but this was a little heavier later stuff. You know, like Hendrix and Cream mm-hmm. and and stuff like that. You know, but. Uh, I, I grew up on, uh, you know, playing Wildwood Flower and Under the Double Eagle, and and my dad and and uh, my uncle had a band, you know, uh, like they called it the fiddle and guitar, and uh, so I had those kind of roots, you know. And music's always been a big part of our our household, and you know, when I reached the Bay Area, it was just natural, you know. I mean, cruising down the streets, you know, listen to uh, Redbone and stuff like that. And I mean, American Indian people everywhere. My, it was almost like a culture shock. You know, I was in Oakland. I was in East Oakland, which says something different than just Oakland. And uh, probably 90% of my neighborhood was African-American. And I think the other, most of the others were Hell's Angels from uh, <laughs> motorcycle okay and they put us right in the middle of it you know we're gonna be cutting corners and you weren't gonna be living where you thought you were but anyway here's your apartment and so okay we just went in there but i mean they loved us you know i played at a, at a club uh every every uh week usually down uh on the one of the main streets there of our neighborhood and they loved american indian culture and of course we had the American Indian centers that were mentioned, like in all cities like that. And right, when you mentioned right, right. Cleveland, a friend of mine from um, from Sheridan 
actually, I mentioned being at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and right next door there's a, a Brown Stadium, and he said, well, that's right where I worked. He said, I was on the docks there in Cleveland, and he said, it was a great time. Uh, American Indian people were coming out, and and who do you think was on the payroll was uh, one of my best workers on the docks was Russell Means. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, we've got a caller on the line right now, Daryl, listening in Hayward, Wisconsin, W-O-J-B. Daryl, let's talk some 60s. You're on the air. Yes. You know, one of the things that you've got a great show. You've always had great shows, and I love listening to Native American Calling. But as you're talking, uh, I'm currently reading a book called Celluloid Indians, Native Americans in Film. It was written by Jacqueline Kilpatrick and uh, published in 1999. But it's very current, and uh, I can some of the things that are presented in the book, I can relate them to what's currently going on in our in our current politics. But the thing that was I noticed in the back, just while I was waiting here, is that the first sentence in the uh, description of the book, it says Native American characters have been the most malleable of metaphors for filmmakers. And that's basically what the book talks about is, is just the different things that were done and how they were changed to represent not what we as Native people uh, see ourselves, not how we see ourselves, but as they interpret us and how they want to present their heroes being um, um being the, the everyday hero, the everyday person, whereas the natives they presented as being the savages and the uh, uh, unintellectual and, and such by the way they had us speak and the things we did. And that was a, date, a great disservice, obviously, to us, but also a disservice to the people who were um, wanting to learn mm -hmm. the truth and such. Absolutely. And the book is titled Celluloid Indians, Daryl? Thanks for that call and, and that resource that you just shared. I'd like to go back to Deanna. And, and Deanna, let's talk a little bit more. National Indian Youth Council there in the early days of the Red Power Movement and Indian activism. And, and where can listeners go and, and learn more about the history of NIYC and, and some of these pivotal events in Native American history? Well, you know, I was actually thinking it'd be great if I could get you a couple of copies of these, uh, these scanned old um, newsletters because they've just contained just such great information about what was going on at, at that time, you know, looking at education in our communities, looking at, um, yes, the, the, the um, environmental issues that we were facing at the time. And um, I would love to get those out to your, to your listeners. And maybe I can email those over to you and you can post them. Um, otherwise, you know, they can always visit our website. Uh, we're at niyc-alb.org for more information. Yeah, please do that. Send those over. Maybe we can put those up online and and learn a little more. And Deanna, I want to ask you uh, the '60s. What, what do you remember about them? Or when you just hear that word, the '60s and, and Native America, what's the first thing that comes to mind to you? Well, for me, it, you know, it does come down to the Indian activism and really kind of that that spirit of standing up for what is right. And um, taking, a, taking a stand against things, letting your voice be heard, getting together with your friends and, and kind of, you know, organizing your, your thoughts and organizing your, your communities to respond to the issues that we were facing at that time. And um, I think that the NIYC was, did a really great job of, of organizing their Red Power movement. And, um, you know, I love to see the, the old pictures 
of them, you know, participating in protests or even just, you know, in parades or driving down the um, driving down the, the main street in, in Dallas or in Washington, D.C., um, just to let the Indian voice be heard and seen. Absolutely. And I don't think people realize how pioneering those young people were in, in those. That was so unheard of to protest, to to have a, an agenda like that and, and to go out there and take those kinds of risks. And I mean, during that period of time, you know, there were still a lot of people that were pushing, you know, native people should assimilate. Let's integrate. And then here you had this group of young people that were saying no. No, that's not the way. That's not the future. The future is to embrace who we are as Native people and to promote that. And, and they, they took huge risks during that period. They really did. And, you know, the results of those risks are things like, you know, the, um, the, the Religious Freedom Act, the Indian Religious Freedom Act, and the support that we, that we gave to, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, self-determination, the self-determination era had, you know, a, a leg to stand on. Um, came from these early days when when they were out there doing those protests. Yeah, absolutely. Just just amazing, amazing people, an amazing decade. Uh, we've got about another minute before we wrap up, but I want to go back to Dawn, Dawn Little Sky. And Dawn, any final words of wisdom? I'd like to give you the, the last word today on our show to share. Anything you want to say to Native people out there listening, tell us uh, some words of wisdom. So I went into acting. It was hard to get in there because the stereotype was all the Indians could do is just the ugh, and they had no expression. And uh, later on, when they found out that my husband could do comedy, he was one of the people that really got a lot of work because he could be a native with a grass skirt. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for our magical little journey back in time to the 1960s. And I want to give thanks to to Professor Donovan Sprague, uh, Don Little Sky, Jonathan Tomhave, America Meredith, and Deanna Eckhar. Thank you all for joining us and enlightening us about what it was like being Native during that groovy decade of empowerment, the 1960s. Join us tomorrow for a show about Native co-op business models. And next Wednesday, we'll be continuing our Through the Decade series with the 1970s, so don't forget your leisure suit. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. CMS program contact local Indian health care provider Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.